Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. On today's show, I'm joined by Jim Tincher, customer experience expert. He co-authored the book, How Hard Is It To Be Your Customer? Using journey mapping to drive customer-focused change. But today, we're chatting about his latest book, Do B2B Better? Drive Growth Through Game-Changing Customer Experience. For the book, Jim has talked with hundreds of CX leaders in B2B companies. And today, he shares some of their stories on implementing successful CX programs. We chat about the role of surveys in those programs, and we're going to get a little bit emotional as Jim tells us how multiple sources show B2B decision-making isn't all rational and price-based. It has a significant emotional component too. That's all coming up, so let's head over to studio and get things started with Jim Tincher. Jim, welcome to Inside Intercom. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're delighted to have you here. So I suppose just before we get started, could you give us an idea of your journey to this point in your career? Sure. Um, I, I can't explain it. Uh, my very first job out of, out of college, I um, went to my boss and I was going to visit my girlfriend, now my wife, Connecticut. And I said, well, while I'm there, I'd like to visit a customer. And he gave me this weird look and said, well, Why? I just go on vacation. I, I couldn't answer his question about why, but it just, from the very beginning, I just thought that's what people do, is they spend their time with the customers to understand how to create better products and services. And uh, from there, I went to small business. From there, I went to Best Buy, all very customer-focused organizations. And then I joined a very large health insurance organization. And uh, I led the nation's largest line of health savings accounts, You know, the most fascinating product ever, Right. Well, we thought it was. And literally nobody in our product or marketing team had ever met a client. And when I oh, talked wow. about the importance of talking with customers and saying that the feedback came back was, well, Jim, we don't need to talk to customers. We are customers. So we know what customers want. And, and as long as you can make it so that our customers spend eight to 10 hours a day thinking about health savings accounts, then yes, we're very representative of our customer base. <laughs> but going on the wild assumption that most of our customers don't spend that amount of time, then we're probably missing something. And well, yeah, so we led the nation in sales. We also led the nation in customer churn. Go team, right? <laughs> but, you know, growth covers up a multitude of sins. And because we are adding so many new people in, nobody was noticing all the people leaking out the back. And that's really where I got the bug of bringing our teams out to hear from customers directly, to measuring them, and to really building your business around a solid understanding of what is your customer's need. So let's talk about your latest book, do B2B better, drive growth through game-changing customer experience. It's an interesting angle because often, you know, on the podcast here and when people are talking about customer experience, we're talking about, you know, one consumer. But this is all about what if your consumer is an entire business, like you say. What made you write the book? Well, two things. So going back three years ago, my team and I were talking about why this came out of some work from Customer Think. They came out with a report that showed that three out of four programs can't actually show that the work they're doing is creating an outcome where customers want to buy more from you or stay longer, interact in ways less expensive to serve. 
And so we started to say, well, when we look at our customer base, we can see a few that can actually draw a direct line. And most can't. And we wanted to understand what is it that's different about what we ended up calling the change makers, those who can actually prove that a better customer experience equals a better business versus the vast majority, what we call hopefuls, what they don't do. And they're hopeful because you know they're doing good work and they hope it matters, but they can't prove it, which means when it comes to budget time, you go to your CEO and CEO has, for example, two projects in front of her. One says, well, we can improve NPS by 10 points. The other says, I can save a million dollars in costs. It's not a tough choice. But if they can say, we're going to increase NPS by 10 points, but most importantly, what we feel, we can get about a million dollars in retention savings, and we can add in $2 million of cross-selling through a better customer experience. Well, now the CEO has a different decision to make, and it's in the game. You know, you, whether three million in cost and revenue is better than a million dollars in cost, we are, but you're in the game because you can actually show your work matters. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's rare. Yeah, and I want to understand. And I have a particular passion for B two B because it's the unloved child of customer experience. <laughs> if if you want to talk about Amazon, there's a billion examples out there. You know, Best Buy, Target, E Trade all kinds of them out there. But if you're with a manufacturing company, you look at that and say, you know, what's my equivalent to a friendly greeting? Mm-hmm. I don't have that. And, and so there are very few examples out there for the B2B organization. That's why I really, and B2B2C is even rarer. And they're really important. So that's why I spent time and in the book, I have four recurring case studies. Um, Dow, the large chemical manufacturer who has done an amazing job at accelerating their customer experience maturity. In fact, the chief commercial officer, Dan Futter, wrote the introduction to my book, wrote the forward. Um, Haggerty, which is a B2B2C organization, uh, they're for car enthusiasts. They sell insurance, other products, and they sell through distribution as well as direct. Then we have UKG, a SaaS software platform. They do HR, like payroll and other HR-related software. And then a group who hold their name at the last minute, XYZ Software. So they are a large organization that many would recognize. But I, I use other examples as well. But those four do all four actions of a change maker well. So I use those as recurring case studies throughout. So uh, before we get into the change makers, I mean, h- how would you define customer experience yourself or customer experience program? Well, the customer experience itself, I'll use the CXPA's definition, the Customer Experience Professional Association, which it's the, I don't have the words exactly right, but essentially it is the result of, it's how customers feel as and their actions based on all the interactions with you through website, your salespeople, your product distribution, all of that, the cumulative impact of all that, that leads to different decisions. The program then is a small group of people trying to get the entire organization to act against that and to approve it. And if we look at Dow is, I think, 35,000 employees. And at least the time I wrote the book, they had 15 people in their CX program. And that's a large CX program. And so it's usually, our survey showed that about a third of companies have zero or one people in charge, a third have two to five, and a third have six or more. So it's a small group of people using change management hopefully, 
to get the whole organization on board. So, like, like you said, you've talked to hundreds yep. of CX leaders, you know, in B two B companies on this topic. With these change makers, like, what do you think sets them apart from the hopefuls? We found four actions, and that really are different that pull it out. And so, it starts with they understand how does the company make money off customer experience. You know, I will talk with people, and I'll say, well, how does your organization make money? And they give me a blank look. Um, I was talking to a health insurance organization. I asked, so do those customers who give you a better score in your survey, do they have higher retention? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the first thing a change maker does is they look, they talk to finance, radical, (laughs) radical, Uh, but talk to finance and they understand how does finance measure success? And they link all the work to those metrics. It might be customer lifetime value, It might be net revenue retention, order velocity, categories of goods ordered, share of wallet. But they understand how does my finance group measure success? And then they link that together. So one of the things that surprised me is um, Qualtrics is a survey platform. It's one of the larger ones out there. And at that point, we were not Qualtrics partners, but almost all the change makers had Qualtrics. So now we're a Qualtrics partner because that seems to be a, one of the items. It doesn't have to be that, but it often was. But so were many of the hopefuls. And we found one of the difference was that the change makers actually brought that financial data into their measurement. Daniel Kahneman, I'm a big fan of his work. He won the Nobel Prize in economics, authored the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And one of his pieces of content was, what you see is all there is. So when I was back with that health insurance organization, all they saw was health savings accounts. They assumed everybody thought about them as much as they do. They don't. Most customer experience organizations look at survey scores. And as a result, they assume that's all there is. But the change makers actually bring the financial data. They start with our net revenue retention last year was 103%. Here's what the surveys tell us about those who are bringing more business to those who aren't. They start with that. So that's the first thing is that they specifically tie into the financials. Mm. And when we interviewed, we'd ask them, if I were to ask you whether the customer experience is getting better or worse, how would you answer that question? And they would usually say surveys. Say, okay, how would your CEO answer the same question? Some would say the same surveys which I don't think your CEO is spending a lot of time looking at your surveys. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Others would say, well, they look at attrition and complaints. Okay, that's much better. But then I would say, how would your favorite finance person answer the same question? The change makers had an answer because they've already asked the question. But most others were stumped. And I still remember one who said, well, Jim, you're making an assumption here. Okay, tell me. You're assuming I've talked to people in finance. Oh, yeah. Okay. You caught me. Yeah. That was an assumption I made. And as I started probing more to more people, very few have actually talked to finance to understand how does finance, how do they monetize customer experience? And IBM did a survey a couple of years ago asking CEOs, which member of your C-suite will you rely on most in the upcoming years? And the plurality was the CFO. Your CEO is spending a lot of time with your CFO. 
if you're not connecting with the finance organization, then yes, your CEO cares about survey scores. They care about customer experience. They care about the growth and health of the company a lot more. And so if you can't connect your work to that, oh, you're always going to be struggling for budget. Like in terms of most customer experience programs, they can't show impact, but advanced programs can. Exactly. Yeah. And they can show that when our scores get better, and it was surprising that about half of the change makers use net promoter score, which is very popular. Almost all the hopefuls did. But most hopefuls said, well, we, we want to do customer experience. And it seems like everybody's doing net promoter score. Let's do that too. The change makers asked, does net promoter score predict anything I'm interested in knowing? So does it predict retention? Does it predict cross-sell and upsell, net revenue retention, customer lifetime value? If it does, then I'm the biggest believer in net promoter score that ever existed. But if it doesn't, then I never want to use it again. <laughs> it's got to predict something we care about. And most of the time, mm -hmm. nobody knows if it does or not. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You talk about something that you call the CX loyalty flywheel. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. And the concept is kind of a no-duh at the basis, which is that when you invest in the customer experience, let's say, for example, you streamline your ordering process or you improve how you manage complaints. That when you do that, let's use that example, manage complaints, that the customer experience gets better, you're better at managing complaints, customers become more emotionally engaged to you, promoter score gets better, they actually feel more confidence, more trust in you, then their behaviors change and they order more from you, they stay longer, they interact in ways less expensive to serve, and your company gets healthier as a result through better net revenue retention, through better customer lifetime value. I have never heard anybody who disagrees with that as a concept. That's not what separates the two. What separates is that a change maker actually measures it. So that when they improve the complaints experience, they can show that operational data, we solve that one much more quickly. 
You know, our work, when we worked with Dow, they shortened their complaints turnaround time from 30 days to one. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. But most would never actually go back and measure that. They measure the behavioral data. Did customers have to call us less often because we improved the process? And so they, they look at that. They do a survey too, but they bring in a lot more data. They measure emotions. And one of the biggest, strangest findings from the book is that business customers actually have emotions. Who knew? I know. I was going to say that's such a, it's a really interesting aspect of your book. You know, it's, it's fair to say that most people believe that B2B decision-making is just like, you know, rational and price-based, but there's that emotional component to it. Oh, yeah. Emotions are the best predictors of behavior. So I know I'm going to get a little controversial here. I know you had a, a podcast member talked about the importance of an effortless experience. My research shows that that is largely irrelevant. Not totally. It matters. But if you look back at the book, The Effortless Experience, which is a great book, but its methodology is entirely centralized on the contact center. So yes, if you own a retail store and your POS is down, yes, fixing that problem effortlessly is the most important thing. But the most important thing for staying with that organization is do you have a positive impression upon them? If you feel that this point of sale manufacturer has your back, they're always there for you, and it's down one day, you're like, oh, that's unfortunate. I'm sure they'll get it solved right away. But if you don't have that emotional connection, then confirmation bias kicks in. And yet here's another example of this stupid company who's taking all my money and doesn't care about me. (laughs) Same rational thing happens, same rational experience, POS is down. Very different emotions around it based on how you felt about the organization beginning. Can you measure emotions? Oh, yeah, you can. So first of all, XM Institute has found that when you have a positive emotional experience with the organization, 74% of the time, you will forgive them. 19%, if it's a negative emotional experience, only 19% of the time we forgive them, negative or neutral. So it matters. But the key question is, can you measure emotions? And yeah, you can So what we do, and Roxy Strominger with UKG is fabulous at this. Nancy Flowers, formerly at Haggerty, also did a lot of work in this space. A Dow measures enjoyability. So yes, it matters. And what they do is they first look at the most loyal customers versus the less loyal customers. And that can be defined not by revenue because they're, by definition, a big company would always be more loyal. It's around share wallet net revenue retention, cost to serve. And so we look at who are the most loyal customers and the least loyal, and we ask them about their emotions. And we look to see which emotions best predict what I care about, which are those financial outcomes. Now, we worked with a SaaS software company, and we measure eight emotions with them. Customers who are confident are buying more products from them and have a higher intent to purchase, but they're also buying and bringing that data Whereas customers who are frustrated, much lower intent to buy more. And if they're exhausted, which you've ever, anybody out there who's implemented software, you, you can picture a time where you're pretty exhausted. <laughs> yes. Customers who are exhausted very deliberately intend never to purchase any more products from this company again. But if you can measure that, and again, we use surveys to do that. You can also use text and voice analytics. And you can get ahead of that and say, oh, our customers are exhausted. Well, the most important thing we can do as a company is to send extra resources to that client 
to get them out of that before it sets in. Because once it sets in, again, confirmation bias kicks in, and everything you do is seen in a negative light. Talking about surveys, which surveys matter for a B2B company? You know, can, can you even survey the economic decision maker, you know, like you were saying, is typically, you know, an overworked executive? You can. It may not be. It may not be that you should. There are often better methods. And so typically it's more of a structured interview. So you still put the data into the survey platform, but use a different mechanism you know, let's say that, for example, your client is the senior director of finance or VP of finance for a Fortune 100 organization, and you expect them to fill out your survey, you're sending a really clear message there, which is, I don't have the time to talk to you myself. I just want you to give that feedback to me. Whereas if you show up on site, for example, and you say, hey, we want to collect this feedback. I'd like to talk to you more about your experience. And then after asking questions, you go more into that you're sending a very different message, which is your opinion matters to me. And so you you can't necessarily do that for every client, but your most valuable clients, you really should wonder whether an emailed survey is the best method of getting that feedback. Something I just wanted to touch on within customer experience leadership, you know, there's always the persistent silo problem. Why do you think some of these silos happen in customer experience? And, you know, like, like what can leaders do to get through them? Silos are inevitable. Even my organization with 15 people, we have our silos. Once you scale beyond about five people, they're going to happen. Change makers happen too. What's different is that the change makers use very deliberate change management. Now, they don't call it that. Nobody wants to be changed. But they start with understanding, what does my audience care about? And then they communicate customer experience in a way that helps them accomplish their goals. Jen Zamora, she was the customer experience leader at Dow. She's now been promoted to a global change management position. She was very good at change management, hence the promotion. And she would start with the middle managers because the middle managers is where customer experience goes to die. It's just a lot of research on there about middle managers don't start with customer experience. They start with the KPIs that got them promoted and will get them promoted again. That's what they care about. Yes, they will say customer experience is important, it matters, so on there, but they're going to go back to how do I get promoted? What what do I care about? So she deliberately links customer experience to what they care about. For example, inventory turn. Most of us don't think about inventory turn and customer experience together, but when we start thinking about it, well, I guess it does matter because if it's better customer experience, they order more, therefore inventory turns faster. She can draw that direct line. And so the great programs don't break down all silos. They connect the silos by, first of all, helping them understand how they improve the customer experience, but most importantly, understand how a better customer experience improves their life. Just before we wrap up, I, I want to get your thoughts on AI and how you think, you know, the thing everyone's talking about at the minute, ChatGPT. how do you think that's going to affect CX, you know, going forward? Well, it's going to have a huge impact on our understanding, first of all, that today, most of our clients see survey response rates of 5 to 10%, and they're only focusing on 5 to 10%. AI allows you, and so Sam Wegman at Univar did a great job on this, and they look at, so what do we know about that 7% of customers who fill out surveys? Let's look at the operational data. Let's look at the behavioral data, the financial data. What do we know is going on? 
And then we can actually create a synthetic survey score based on what we know about the rest of the experience. While only 5 to 10% of your customers are talking to you through surveys, all of your customers are talking to you through their behavior. And so if you can look at that and see, turn to such things as number of issues that are opened, complaints, uh, on-time delivery, the operational behavioral data varies depending on your industry. But AI is getting better at helping us to fill in some of those gaps from those who don't fill out surveys. Where it's even better is taking that unstructured data and helping us learn from that at scale. And so taking, for example, people that call into the contact center, conversations with your sales team, email communications, AI can take all of that and help you get a sense of what are my real issues, which are often things you don't ever think to put on a survey. Mm-hmm. And so I see a yeah. bright future for AI, as well as there's some software out there called Journey Analytics and Orchestration that will actually use AI and or more machine learning, but same family, to actually change the experience based on the data. Huh. So wow. we see, for example, that you're always ordering at a certain threshold and then you stop. It can first of all recognize that and then it can automatically reach out. It can tell a salesperson to reach out. It can tell customer service to reach out, or it can send automated communication to say, hey, we noticed your order didn't go through. Have you had any issues? It can recognize the patterns for a human can do and can actually kick off changes to the experience. And so I'm bullish on AI's future in customer experience. Same here. So, you know, what's next? Do you have any kind of big plans or projects for the rest of the year? Well, a couple of them. First of all, uh, with the launch of the book, we held our first Do B2B Better conference. And now I'm biased. I'm clearly I'm biased. I put it on. But we've gotten amazing <laughs> feedback because it wasn't us speaking. Okay, I did the kickoff. But we brought in the six leaders that inspire me the most. Ricardo from Dow, Nancy from Haggerty, uh, Roxy Stromenger from UKG. Six wonderful speakers to talk specifically about how they do the four actions and go really deep into that. So our next, we're coming up in September 12th, we'll have our next one. And we're also looking to conduct a survey to understand what is it that drives B2B loyalty. And instead of starting with survey outcomes, we're going to start with share of wallet. So what the customer experience increases share of wallet. So we're in the early days, we expect to have that out for our next do B2B conference. Brilliant. And lastly, where can people go to kind of keep up with you and, and all of this, all of your work? Well, our website is heartofthecustomer.com. So heartofthecustomer.com, as well as I'm very active on LinkedIn and I love to have people connect with me there. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Liam. I've enjoyed it. That was Jim Tincher there. You can watch the video for this episode on our YouTube channel, and you'll find a full transcript of today's show on the Intercom blog. Both are linked in the show notes. I'll be back next week for more Inside Intercom. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom.